0: My next guest is Rich Lee, head of program trading and execution strategy with Baird, who's a global financial services firm with over $250 billion in client assets. And Rich is involved in a number of uh, areas, but primarily with helping institutional clients with their ETF trading strategies. Uh, I would say he's also an all-around ETF expert, and he's now joining me from New York Rich, great having you uh, back on the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me. Great to be back, Nate.
0: Okay, so we are going to cover a a number of topics that I think are front of mind for ETF investors right now. And so to start, I thought given that you are smack dab in the middle of uh, ETF trading there at Baird, and I know Baird is also an authorized participant, I'd love to ask you about bond ETF trading right now. I saw there was record trading volume in the largest high yield bond ETF last week, HYG, I know the uh, iShares, 20-plus-year Treasury bond ETF, uh, ticker TLT, that's seen a huge surge in trading volume recently. There's really just been a lot more activity around bond ETFs, uh, period. And so what are you seeing and hearing right now?
1: Sure. So great observation on, on your point, Nate. You know, as, as we actually looked at our most active ETF flows on the desk-haired Baird, last week, I, it I quickly dawned on me that basically five of the top 10 most active ETFs that we traded were actually bond um, or treasury related ETFs. So, you know, as you pointed out, HYG, uh, we were very active in. IGBLB, which is the iShares 10-Year Investment Grade Corporate. Uh, AGG, which is the iShares Aggregate Bond ETF. Um, VCLT, which is the Vanguard Long-Term Corporate Uh, bond ETF, and MUB, which is the iShares National Muni bond. So, you know, again, um, as you see, over 50% of the the, the top 10 most active names that we've been trafficking in uh, are Baird or bond um, and fixed income related. So, definitely a lot of interest uh, in that space. Additionally, what's really kind of interesting is, you know, this theme of like bottom fishing, right, or looking for value. If you think about TLT, it's down about 30% um, since I guess, the end of last year, but volume's up around 33%, right? And then similarly with HYG, which is down on the year, but volume is up around 70%. So definitely a lot of um, interest in the bond and fixed income ETFs out there.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting. Uh, this is off the top of my head, but with TLT, I believe it's seen something like $17 billion in inflows this year, which puts it in the top three of all ETFs. And you mentioned bottom fishing. I think that There's clearly a a large segment of investors who are trying to call a a, a top in rates right now. And so it's just an interesting dynamic. I think fixed income is really challenging because, you know, do you lock in yields that we haven't seen in in what, you know, 15 years or however long it's been? Do you lock those yields in now? And uh, or, you you know, do you but but if you lock those in, obviously, you're taking the risk in something like TLT that you still have some, uh, you know, fairly significant drawdown potential. Uh, You know, on the other hand, if you just park on the short end of the curve, you have that reinvestment risk. That's right. And, right? Yeah. And, and then with HYG, you know, do you take on that credit risk right now in this environment? If you think we're going to head into a recession, you know, that's tricky. And so I think these volumes that we're seeing, it's just indicative of that uh, uncertainty out there from ETF investors in terms of w- what they should do. What about on the equity side? Is anything in particular standing out to you on ETF trading there or even just more broadly?
1: Sure. So, you know, I think it's interesting, right? Like you, you've had about 68 uh, ETFs, which launched in September, which is, you know, about more than three a day that are launching, right? So it's an all-time record. Um, we're still seeing a lot of robust interest um, in the issuer space uh, for for, for ETF demand. Um, but the rate is slowing, right? So this is the second annual uh, year of depreciation that we've seen from the peak, right? So in, in 2021, where we had about $900 billion um, in growth, and then in 2022, which we had about $614 billion, um, still a lot of robust growth, but some deceleration. There in the velocity of, of shares that were, were, were coming um, that are coming to the market.
0: On the uh, launch side, I don't know if you saw this. I believe there were 69 new ETFs that came to market in September. That was a an all time record. And then I was looking over the weekend; something like 20 ETFs have already launched so far in yeah. uh, October. It's pretty remarkable. Um, okay, let me tee up some other hot topics in ETFs right now, and, and you can offer your uh, your quick take and. I guess if we stay on the equity side, one of the areas that I continue seeing a lot of chatter around is the uh, concentration risk in the S&P 500, right? If you look, the top 10 holdings comprise about 32% of that index's weighting. I believe that's the highest ever. And uh, I I actually tweeted out a great chart from Strategas Todd Sohn last week that showed the top 10 holdings in the S&P 500, have contributed nearly, listen to this, nearly 96% to that index's return through the end of September. That's the highest ever for a uh, positive performance year. Number two, by the way, is uh, 79% back in 2007, which is a little ominous, but (laughs) I'll put that aside. But but does that concentration uh, concern you at all? Do you think ETF investors should be doing anything differently right now?
1: Sure. So, you know, a couple of points to that, Nate, right? Like you're absolutely right in that there's there there is a lot of concentration in the top ten names within the S and P index, right? And certainly a large non trivial contribution to the returns, right? And then if you look at the top sort of, you know, six to seven names outside of that ten, right? Not only is there concentration, the heavy concentration with regard to returns, but there's a heavy like sector concentration too, right? So, so obviously a huge tech slant within those names. In terms of concentration risk, potentially it's a real thing. I think it, it comes down to what your objective is, right? And if you think about like something like the SPY, which is a market cap, market cap weighted index, which tries to replicate the 500 largest names in, in the market, it's doing what it's designed to do right? And by virtue, tech is a strong sector, a lot of returns there. So it's going to have a heavier concentration, right? And, and so you are potentially, if you're looking to replicate the returns of the S&P 500, SPYs is, is how are you are going to do that? If you're looking to replicate the returns of the tech sector, XLK, same thing, heavy tech concentration. So what I would say to that is these ETFs are index products that are doing what they're designed to do, Right? And so if you want diversification, then you need to think about where are you not getting the diversification. Am I too tech focused? Am I too market cap focused? If I want exposure to the S&P, but I don't want mark, market cap rated returns, maybe I'll look at something like the RSP, which is the equal weight S&P 500. Right? So really, it's about what sort of exposure you're looking for, but being cognizant of the potential risks that you're being exposed to within that exposure and how you potentially uh, mitigate that or hedge that.
0: You, you bring up an excellent point in that right now we are seeing all these headlines around the concentration risk in the S&P 500. Uh, uh, 500. But if you're an index investor in a longer term index investor, guess what? You got the benefit of that on the way up. That's right. and, and that always gets lost uh, in, in the shuffle. I think that's a very important point that, yeah, that's why you index. You, you get that's the benefit true. as that happens. Um, l- let's say you have an investor. You, you mentioned RSP. There, there are other alternatively weighted strategies out there. Maybe they don't want to go index-based and they want to look to an active manager. So let, let's say we assume an active manager out there is actually doing something meaningfully different than the benchmark. Um, as I'm sure you're aware, active management has been a, a really a red-hot area within the ETF industry, right? It's garnering a lot of attention. Uh, we're seeing outsized flows, new ETF launches there. Do you think that's something investors should consider right now? And I guess what's been your take on the growth of active ETFs overall?
1: Sure. So, so great point, Nate. Right. Like you know, we just talked about concentration risk or you know certain exposures that you're getting to when you're looking at these passively uh, indexed ETF products, right? And so, so if you are aware of that and you feel that there's a need to diversify, right? Well, if you are, have a heavy slant towards passive, what's a way to diversify? Start to think about some some pass, uh, some some active strategies, right? So you know, obviously, it's no secret that traditional indexed ETF products were the sort of the first generation of ETFs out there. And then the thing that's been g- garnering a lot of attention the last couple of years is this rise in the active uh, ETF space, right? So if you think about um, the growth, right, we're seeing about 14% growth for active ETFs. Uh, ETFs versus three percent growth for passives, right? So that's just a sort of a, maybe an indicator that we're seeing a lot of interest. This product group is really kind of coming to its own. People are looking to to, to diversify and get exposure to different you know, different investment styles, particularly active investment in this in this uh, space, right? So, you know, I, I think that there's there's definitely a lot of interest in this. I think if you are thinking where you've traditionally been looking only at passive index products, then the active space really kind of gives you An exposure that you may not have had traditionally. Um, And it's interesting because I think, you know, as we look at some of the active ETFs that are out there, I think there's something like 57% of of active ETFs have outperformed passive ETFs this year. So, Hmm. you know, again, an interesting space to to kind of keep an eye on.
0: Do you think we'll continue to see growth in active ETFs moving forward, or do you think we're currently? Just in the perfect environment where we've had this shifting market regime overall, and so maybe investors are more attuned, you know, to active management. But perhaps, you know, once the performance shows itself over the long term, we've all seen the data that maybe uh, some of the air comes out of active ETFs. Or do you think again we'll continue seeing this growth uh, trajectory?
1: I think I think it's dependent on a number of things, as you pointed out, right? Like certainly. Uh, passive sorry active products are are you know a newer entrance to the ETF space there's a lot of interest you have traditional along only money managers that are, that are looking at the ETF channel as a way to get some of their active products to market. Um, it's definitely, there's a lot of growth and innovation in the space, but at the end of the day, the returns have to be there, right? And, and everything that, that, that's done for, in the investment space, the returns have to be there for the investors to have an interest. So I think it's, it's a symbiotic relationship, but there's definitely you know, a lot of room to grow within the active space.
0: All right. I do want to ask you about uh, ETFs moving to T plus one settlement uh, next year. But before I do that, any other ETF stories front of mind for you right now? Anything else standing out?
1: You know, there, there's nothing in particular, but, but sort of everything in particular, right? And, and you know, the, the reason I say that is if you think about sort of the macro environment that we've been in in the last 18 months, right, higher inflationary prices, higher interest rates, the war in Ukraine, and now the terrible attacks that happened in Israel, so any one of these individual macro events are catalysts to drive the the economy and the market in one direction or another, right? But at the same time, we've had all of these macro uh, sort of situations happening at once, but yet the market's been relatively strong. It's been able to shrug it off. You have the S&P up almost 20% on the year, and it's almost this Jenga game of macro events and how the market's able to absorb it. And so you know, what we're kind of focused on is how many more of these sort of jenga blocks can the, the economy take and still kind of maintain the robustness that we've seen in the last year? So that'll be an interesting theme to watch as we kind of go into next year.
0: That's such a great analogy. And this has been an interesting year in that if you look at stocks, especially you look at growth or, or technology stocks, the performance has been remarkable overall. But yet you look at ETF lows, and this is something we've talked about all year long on the podcast they have been muted. You, you you touched on that earlier. And so it's like investors just have not fully believed the rally that we've seen. And then of course, at the same time, with where yields are at, those competing yields are attractive. If you can move into something, you know, risk free and scoop up five, five and a half percent, uh, you know, you move into investment grade corporates above that, that's pretty compelling. And so I think you're right, just with everything going on, it's going to be interesting to see how, how that looks moving forward and, and how that's reflected in ETF uh, flows. I don't know if you have any other thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, I think, I th- and I think, you know, back to your earlier point about the activity that we're seeing in the fixed income ETF space, that's why you see so much activity in different. ETFs, right? So TLTs, right? Treasuries, uh, you know, high yield investment grade, right? There's just a variety of views out there with regard to how investors are thinking about this macro environment that we're in and seeing and you're seeing those themes played out in terms of how. Um, investors are going to market with regard to the stocks that the, the ETFs that they're buying and selling in the fixed income space.
0: It's so interesting. And again, even on the equity side, like you mentioned, RSP, the uh, equal weighted SP 500 ETF, you're seeing inflows there. So, yeah, it's just a, a fascinating environment right now. Um, Rich, before I let you go, I am seeing a lot more talk about ETFs moving from a T plus two to T plus one settlement in May of next year. And I'm sure I'll be going much more in depth on this topic as we get closer to the date. And I know you and I could probably do a full what hour or two podcast on this. But as someone who is an expert around ETF trading, is there anything that you think um, investors or advisors should be planning for around this or thinking about? Or is this more of a uh, back end industry plumbing you know, issue?
1: Yeah, well, sure. It it definitely is a a a back end plumbing issue, but it is something that brokers, investment managers, and ETFs um issuers should be cognizant of and and you know already planning for if they haven't already and i i do know that you know the majority of the industry actually has been thinking about this for a long time um and the reality is right what's happening is we in the u.s are moving from a t plus two um from trade date where you trade a etf or stock to settling two days later to a t plus one so within one day um trades will book and settle right and what's a little bit different about this is there's a shortened cycle time but unlike in the past, uh, Europe and Asia is not moving to a concurrent cycle. They, the majority of the developed European and Asian markets are in a T2 settlement cycle. So, what that's going to do is that's going to cause a little bit of a settlement lag, right? So, for instance, if you think about it in the context of trading a global rebalance for an index or an ETF, if I am a seller, a net seller of securities in Asia or Europe and a net buyer, well, I sell today, but I don 't get my cash for two days, but I need the, that cash to fund those buys in the u s which are then settling you know a day earlier. so that creates a whole host of um, operational and organizational issues that, that you know we as an industry need to think through, right? How does it work from a settlement perspective? How does it work from a financing perspective? right? Not really an issue when we were in a zero interest in, environment, but now that, that you know, money is relatively not free anymore, that's a concern, right? And so how do we manage that risk? So these are things that, that we as an industry are kind of thinking through and kind of working through right now, and those have implications from um, you know, a creation redemption um, perspective when you think about some of the, e- the global ETFs out there, but again, something that, that the industry is like working towards, um, towards resolution for.
0: I don't want to get uh, into the weeds on this again. I'll be covering this much more in depth, I'm, I'm sure, as we get closer to the date. But when you mention things like the settlement lag and, and financing costs, do you think uh, – and in, in, in what I'm thinking about is, again, the impact of the end investor or advisor. Do you think we could see spreads widen at all in some ETFs, some of the global ETFs, to, to account for that?
1: I think potentially right and I think it all comes down to how the industry you know addresses this right and so basically if brokers uh, are forced to, to bear the cost of, of the cost of carry for, for interest rates you know that has to come from somewhere right so mm-hmm. potentially you see that play out in spreads potentially you see that play out in higher commissions um, and if, if the issuers have to bear that cost because they're bearing the financing cost does that play itself out in in the way of, like, higher management fees, right? I mean, there is obviously, if there's settlement mismatch, right, and there's friction around that, and we are in a a place where you do have higher interest rates, and there's a cost for cash, and that cost needs to be, you know, borne for, for, with regards to, like, doing a rebalance or, you know, settlement for a creation-redemption, that's got to play out somewhere, right?
0: Yeah, that'll be uh, interesting to watch. Um, You know, I do think from the uh the benefit side, I think having e t f settle essentially on the same clock as mutual funds will be good you know for the average investor, just eliminating some of that confusion around settlement times and I think anytime uh you have trade settle quicker, that means investors can access their cash quicker, which is a good thing, but yeah, it'll be interesting just looking at some of the the back end again plumbing issues and whether or not that ultimately impacts the front and what investors see in uh, in spreads and those sorts of things but rich. So great having you back on the uh, podcast. Really enjoyed the uh, conversation this week. Thank you for joining me.
1: Same here. Thanks for your time. Have a great day.
0: That was Rich Lee, head of program trading and execution strategy with Baird.